Thank you all for joining us on NeuroNoodles Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback Podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing over 50 years and like to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Janssens.com. That's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And Dr. Skip can be found at drskipren.com. That's drskiphrin.com. My name is Pete, and today we're going to address listener topic ideas, the topics that were brought up to us in chat were procedural learning and how to choose a neurofeedback practice. Dr. Laura, Dr. Skip, with how to choose a neurofeedback practice, that's kind of a simple one to, to us. What? <laughs> yeah, you want to give them the number, Pete? bcia.org anybody that you can find in your in your area that's on there should should be a good practice to go to yeah oh, I thought you, meant, you mean outside of uh neuro noodle oh outside of neuro noodle yeah okay we we don't have our uh portable van yet to head out to florida what <laughs> Um, no, the BCIA site is a good one um, for sure. And, and there's a tab that says search for providers. There's probably, if we're going to give it a minute here, some reasonable questions to ask someone when you call, right? Um, and, and without getting into too much detail, but maybe what kind of devices they use, what their, what their sessions might look like. Um, some folks include air quotes, therapy or counseling within the neurofeedback, some don't. Um, and, and I guess all I'm really suggesting is just to kind of get an idea of what, what it'll look like when you're working with them. You know, do you meet with the technician? Do you meet with the, you know, anybody that's qualified or, or credentialed by BAIA? All good questions, I think. What about you, Laura? Should be understood about BCIA. Uh, they are the people to hand you a certificate saying that you've done. Um, and here's the important word, you've done basic education. So all they're saying is you've received the introduction to neurofeedback, but it, I have to say it, in, in no way says that you're qualified in, in terms of, uh, you know, long period of time that, that you've been practicing. So it's not a, a promise that you have years and years of experience. It's saying you're invested as a person, a clinician in learning the, the most science that's available about neurofeedback. So really it's an introductory, uh, introductory certificate. And again, in, in no way says that you're necessarily qualified. I'm sure there's probably, you know, very many of them who are, you know, very seasoned and qualified, but um, that, that's going to be the consumer's homework is to kind of ask those questions. Yeah. How many years have you been doing this? What's your background? Um, you know, what's your, like you said, Skip, what's your approach? And beyond the BCIA, I mean, there's a, a QEEGD certificate you can get also, and, and that is a little bit more advanced, and it says that you know, I guess in, in my summary of it, you know your electronics, you know what, how to interpret the waves, you know meaning behind, uh, you know, when you really look at the waveforms, kind of what do they mean and how do they translate to uh, patient symptoms, so there's some advanced credentials you can get, but it's really, you know, again, I think the consumer's role to interview um, the practitioners, just as an example, I was asked to do a second opinion uh, recently on someone who had, you know, and to be honest with you, I didn't look up their credentials. It, to me, it didn't much matter, but it, it wasn't um, the same equipment 
use, but you can can't, you can record a, a brainwave on, on many kinds of uh, using many kinds of amplifiers and software. And so all of the different software uh, companies have different um, ways of pre presenting the information. But I got the second opinion and I looked at the scan, you know, listeners aren't going to necessarily understand what I mean unless they've had a scan, but just about every bin, every little circle with, uh, and it's supposed to be red and green, every circle practically was red. And the person was upright and they were fine and they were calm in my office. You know, as I looked at that scan, I'm like, okay, was your hair wet? Did you come in out of the snow or rain? Um, are you wearing hair products? Like what in the world is causing this uh, scan? Th that's kind of the issue. So you get someone who does have, you know, more experience and background um, versus someone who doesn't, who doesn't know how to interpret, you know, the, the drawings, the sketches, you know, it's important. And, and there's different levels of clinicians who do this. So there's bachelor level people who have to work, you know, if they're going to be BCIA, they have to work under a license, either master's level uh, clinician or doctorate. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to have master's level clinicians looking over your scans and they're going to have, you know, their knowledge base for knowing diagnostic things but then you can get more advanced and, you know, specific with um, psychiatric diagnosis. And you're going to talk to a psychologist possibly. And again, they may, may or may not have experience in this stuff. And then we have, you know, you go, go uh, down the road and you have a neuropsychologist who really kind of understands um, brain, brain functioning and, and brain structure. So, you know, you got ABCD levels here in terms of experience and knowledge and Unfortunately, just because you're BCIA does not mean that you have, you know, seasoned background necessarily. Again, I'm sure many people do, but if, if you read the fine point on the BCIA, it's um, saying it's an introductory certification. It's just saying that you're invested in, in doing the, the due diligence and, and learning the science behind it. Whereas there are, since it isn't regulated otherwise, there are several people who um, are doing their version of, and I'm sure what they call neurofeedback, but they, they are not as interested in the, the science um, studies, the research, and they may do anecdotal research, meaning they, they develop their own system, system of interpreting these scans and, you know, maybe based on their history and their experience, and maybe there's some credibility to that. But again, um, there, there's such a wide range of uh, people performing these things that at a basic, basic level, yeah, absolutely, go for the BCIA. I could add one more just general thing, and I, I always felt this was really important, whether you're looking for a neurofeedback technician provider, whether you're looking for a therapist, a counselor, a psychologist, or anybody, a physician. When you're asking them about their credentials, they should be pretty cool about responding, right? And if it feels like you're putting them out or they don't have time to tell you why, they're qualified to be a healthcare provider for you, then I'd kind of head on down the road, psychologist training in us, Laura, but like, mm -hmm. that's the deal. You know what I mean? You got to make connection with people. And if, um, mm -hmm. unless my, just put it firmly, unless people are willing and open to talk about, you know, why they're qualified and why they're a good choice for you to work with them, then they might not be and probably aren't. That's my two cents on that. Again, just a general do you, want, do you want to ask if their their equipment is FDA regulated? I know we're going to have Steve uh, Stearns on next week from uh, Stens Equipment, but is that a valid question? I mean, that's a great question. Yeah, I think BCIA from the layman speaking to me, I want to see it. You know, are you BCIA 
do you have that certificate? And then number two, the equipment that you're using, you know, does the FDA give the thumbs up to it? That's sure. what I would look at. Yeah, maybe yeah, I've been doing it. Yep. And to be clear, let, let's talk about what, what does it mean that the FDA, FDA is so-called approving of that? Yeah. What's your understanding of that, Skip? Right. Some folks have technology and devices that work phenomenally well, but they need to be careful about how they market them and discuss them because they can't go out and say, hey, this works for this or this works for this because they're not FDA approved. And these are devices we can get into a different show. It's important because it's the way things are set up. Um, I think it's established that it's this gold standard to get FDA approval. And it is certainly for some things because, again, that's the system that we work under. I don't know that it always guarantees that the best products are being presented to us. And so there's my on the spot kind of answer. Um, yeah, it's better yeah. than not, I guess, but I don't know that it always guarantees that things are phenomenal, right? It certainly doesn't yeah. patients, right? We, we've all seen that. Go ahead. I, I, yeah, no, um, and it, maybe we can come back to, to this. Yeah, I wanted to look it up. I know we have some white papers on, on the topic, but in here, I think we're both saying we don't quite know, but I think even if it's FDA regulated, it's not promising to you know, diagnose anything. It's not promising to treat anything. That might be the assumption. I, that's why I bring up the question. Um, it might be you know, regulated in, in terms of the electronics in there are doing what they say they're gonna do. So if we're trying to look at a brainwave, it's gonna be reliable and consistent in, uh, you know, if you look at a, a brainwave in, in the first minute and you go five minutes later, are we still, you know, seeing a consistent pattern or is it so you know wild that it's really not picking up? And and that's maybe what I was referring to with the I was doing the second opinion uh, comment that um, you know was that thing that they were using, which was not a I don't know if it was FDA or not. But the question I was having when I looked at the scan is is yeah was it measuring what it was supposed to measuring uh, be measuring, and was it obvious to whoever was reading it that yeah they they had. Um, hair gel in it or they had there was wet or something was, was off in the recording. Um, so it, I think the FDA, they're saying, yeah, we're, we're measuring brain waves with this and we're measuring brain waves in a consistent fashion um, so that, you know, the first couple minutes of, of the recording is going to be correct in 10 minutes later and 30 minutes later, however long, you know, you take a recording. So it's actually measuring that, but it, you know, again, it doesn't take it to the clinical level in terms of interpretation or in terms of um, diagnosis at all. So that, that's to be clear too. So FDA is nice, but it's not, and it's gold standard for saying, yeah, this is measuring a brainwave. And, you know, again, I, I always think of, you know, brainwaves and what does that mean? That we're taking a millionth of a volt, you know, right? If you think about your, uh, you know, batteries, you, you put in your electronic equipment, you know, you get a nine volt battery to, to run something that's nine volts and that, you know, it runs your, your little electronics, but a millionth of a volt. I mean, think about the fraction, you know, that of electricity that we're trying to catch, and the electricity comes up from the base of the skull, base of the brain, and it's moving through all that tissue and it's bouncing around. I mean, you, you think of, you know, how many little, you know, structures a little brain, a little electronic signal is bouncing around gets through the brain tissue, gets through the skull, it's a hard thing, and it gets through your skin, gets through your hair. And, you know, we tell people don't wear hair gel. Now, if it's going through your hair gel, now, you know, what, what are we measuring? So 
we're really trying to, I was using the analogy, trying to catch a piece of dust, you know? And so um, in terms of qualification of, of the person, they, they really need to understand that, you know, you're trying to catch a piece of dust, you know, and amplify it. That's what these amplifiers are doing. With chopsticks. Yeah, they're, yeah, exactly. With chopsticks with, uh, yeah, blindfolded, you know, you really need the, the clinician, the practitioner, understand that that's what you're doing and try to mitigate you know, the other thing, you know, as I, as I personally dig deeper into this um, in ter terms of the research, you, know, you think of all the little bumps and, you know, um, little, you know, parts of the brain. And so it depends, you know, even the sensor angle, if you put the sensor on one side of, you know, there's little bumps and ridges on, on the brain. If you put the sensor on one side of the bump, you're going to get a different reading than if you put the sensor on the other side of the bump. And, and I'm getting whatever, super technical in here. But, but the point is that FDA approves uh, means only that it, it's developing a signal that's consistent, I think, and we'll, we'll get back to this, I can you know, relook at that. But, um, but then the other part is that the, the practitioner needs to know all of those intricacies so that, yeah, the sensors have to be on there properly, the hair has to be clean. So we wanna make sure there's no artifacts there, there's jaw tension, there's facial tension, there's, there's, also, there's electricity in the walls. So there's so many factors that go into getting a nice clean reading and even then, you know, yeah, we're still trying to catch a millionth of a volt blindfolded with chopsticks. That's a good analogy. Um, what about Yelp, Google, uh, Psychology Today? Uh, looking up the provider on there. Any of that uh, should be good. But I think when you do those routes, certainly Yelp and Google and all those good things, you get people's feedback, right? Other people like yourself that are looking for providers. I know that it seems that qualitatively looking at those reviews might be better than quantitative meaning. Uh, I was just looking for something the other day uh, myself and someone raved about a product or a, a, actually it was a, a store and they raved about it and then gave them one star, two stars. I was like, so what they, they forget to like, you know, finish their review here. What happened? And so there's that too, you know, like I'm always interested in what people have to say. So I think there's value in that beat and that there's, other human beings maybe in your position that are looking for a provider might not know and they're like hey yeah their front office is really friendly and they make you feel comfortable or their billing uh department's a nightmare well, you know you just, you, i think you get some real information i don't know that you get the kind of technical information that you know laura was just referring to from lay people but mm -hmm. I think you definitely get other kind of information i can't speak for psychology today yes well and, and the thing to know about psychology today is that we as clinicians, we're paying to put our advertising on there, basically putting our credentials, putting our background. And it's a great way to get to know us. Like we try, we were, we're allowed, so to speak, to express ourselves and, you know, talk about our strengths and weaknesses on there. And so, you know, you're, you're shopping from, you know, web pages. Um, you do have to have uh, basic credentials to be on psychology today. So at least, you know, that separates it from the people who are not credentialed experienced. And so, yeah, I think psychology today is good. The other thing, you know, we're talking about internet, and this is a great topic to get into. I have uh, disclosure forms, consents for treatment that I uh, review with patients before I start working with them. And one of the things I do talk to them about is, yes, you can go online and read reviews, but they may not always be accurate. You might read some negative things about me, but that doesn't you know, always translate to I'm a, I'm a bad person or a bad clinician. 
people can be, you know, upset about different things. And we're talking about psychological conditions. So they're going to, you know, be responding, you know, based on how, how bad they're suffering. And, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, that they, they absolutely have a right to say what they need to say, but it's super important to not judge, you know, a, a book by the internet. You have to call them, have a face-to-face -face contact and, and get, like Skip said it earlier, get a feel for the person and not just based on a review. The other thing, and this is super frustrating for me, is that there are, and you guys have to tell me what the word, what they're called, but, but there's these sites take over your identity, not in terms of you know, necessarily clinically misleading, but they take over your address and your phone number. And so if you type my name into the internet right now, be some sites, and I don't want to advertise for them, uh, but, and they act like they're you and they're not you. And so people will say, well, I found your address on the internet. Well, yeah, I, I was there three years ago and those health, whoever people didn't update that because I moved and they're mad at me, you know, or I, I've had one where somehow they got my personal cell phone and I don't typically do that because I can't respond, you know, quickly clinically on my, you know, personal cell phone if I got it stored in a drawer, you know, overnight, whatever. Um, but yeah, they've called my personal cell. Well, I got, I got you on the internet. I'm like, oh, great. You know, so um, there, there might, you know, if you're ordering pizza and, you know, you look at Yelp, I, you know, even, even that, how valid can that be? I'm, I'm sure, you know, if they're describing things to a T and they, you know, explaining, yeah, that they, they saw whatever dirt in the corner and, and don't go there, that, that might be uh, more reliable than interviewing your doctor through Yelp. I don't know. I, I, Maybe I'm too much of a grandma, but I still think there's there's more credibility in a face-to-face -face, uh, interview than there is on looking on Yelp. What else we got, Pete, from the listener land? Procedural learning. That was a suggested topic. What is procedural learning? Well, we could do what we normally do, and I give you my definition, and then Laura uh, gives you the real definition. We could start like that. Boom. Um, but we both, we both learned from the same 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 uh, source. Laura's got better recall. But I think real quick, it's important to point out what the brain does, right? It does a lot of things, of course, but it scans the environment so it can learn what's going on so that it can t anticipate events in the future, right? So it's always trying to make novel the familiar, right? So you got new stuff. Your brain's trying to make it novel so you can put it in the background and not have to worry about it and be ready for the next novel thing, like a saber-toothed tiger jumping out from behind the rock, right? So within that process, and again, that's everybody's brain. It's trying to assess environmental stimulus and take all this info in, figure out what it needs to do all behind the scenes, right? So that it can make things automatic so that we can move on and not have to worry about that. Anybody that's ever learned how to drive a stick, if you got proficient at it, you know, you can take a year off and just jump back in and you can still drive a stick. Um, that's an example of your brain learning something, right? And making it automatic. It's also an example of procedural learning, right? So there's steps involved with things and, and the idea of procedural learning, the, the implicit learning, if you will, um, as opposed to explicit, right, learning information. It's implicit learning and you become proficient at it. I don't know about you, Laura, only because I don't want to speak for your practice, but I get to see lots of folks that have difficulty with procedural learning to some degree. 
and it would make sense given as neuropsychologists and we're here to kind of see how people function in the world that because they have difficulties with procedural learning or automating, right? Then they're not meeting the demands of their environment. And that could mean as a kid, you're not getting done what you need to get done in school or you're not getting things done at home or as an adult, your work's inefficient or you can't manage, you know, getting to the bank uh, so you can keep your electric bill on, whatever it might be, right? Meeting the demands of your environment's about the biggest catch-all phrase there is. But if you have trouble doing it, it means that things are gonna come back and get you. And sometimes that affords you a trip to the neuropsychologist for the day, right? To do some testing without trying to be, you know, flip about it. But we, I see a lot of folks that again, to some degree have difficulties with procedural learning. So I'll, I'll jump off there and Laura, you can jump in, clean it up. I'm thinking of Len Koziel, of course, cause he's the one who, who brought this pack yeah. to our attention. He signed his, he, he had a signature on his email and the signature was, and he put his name, but thought is mental movement without motion. Yeah, so Len Koziel had a signature on his email, thought is mental movement without motion. And they also had, uh, I think this is either German or Russian, Schachmat. Let's go off on a tangent. Skip, what's Schachmat? What? Want me to look it up? Because I don't know it. I don't want that, to look it up. Hold on. Is that when you stub your toe? That's what you said? Uh, kind of. Kind of. Anyone who's watching Queen's Gambit may know. Uh, oh, shoot. I did see Checkmate. Checkmate. He was a uh, chess yeah. man. Yeah. Checkmate. Sign, yep. He would sign off. Thought is mental movement without motion. I think he added some of that toward the end. But um, And then Shakmat, which is Checkmate. Uh, Len, and he'd have a picture of um, a chessboard with some pieces. So it was pretty cool. But uh, so let, let's let's define procedural learning. Many people have an assumption that what they do is controlled by what they think. That things are declarative, things you can declare. I want to move my hand across the table to grab my pen. Without movement there's no cognition or there is no thought. That was the one that was, uh, mm-hmm. remember Pauline Prince? That was the one she yeah, borrowed. She, would have, yeah. she signs her letters like that. And it's, oh, and that yeah, yeah. so without movement, that was this thing. If you're unable to explore your environment physically, then you won't yeah. develop cognition, right? right. And, and right. then I, you remember Arthur, but Arthur used to work with blind folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in his early practice. And so he was always consulting with Arthur about the development of cognition with folks that are uh, blind, right? And, and, and yeah. blind from birth, right? And, and the difference that occurred. So anyway, fascinating right. stuff. Yeah, so, uh, so to define procedural learning, I'm kind of going at it from the angle that many people have the assumption that our behavior is driven by our thoughts. And the, no is is what we were taught right and so no is what we were taught that our our thoughts do not drive our behavior our behavior drives our behavior our ability to adapt to an environment basically unconscious that there's there's procedures that our brain is born to learn that unfold and develop as you try to adapt to the world so there is procedural learning, which is how do you learn? 
to do something? How do you learn to ride a bike? How do you learn to cook? How do you learn to use your keyboard? Those are how kinds of things that you learn to execute. Some of it is um, turns into habits and you have to apply your habits to a situation, you know, as the environment changes. Some of them you learn as you go, learn to do things. So there, you know, if you think about when you've learned to ride a bike, you, you can't put learning to ride a bike into words. It's more of a thing that you do than, you know, I can give you a manual. I say this all the time, give you a manual on how to ride a bike, but it doesn't teach you how to ride a bike. It, it's in the doing of it that, that trains you. So you can't talk yourself in, into, you know, you can't read a book and then get on the bike and now you're riding it. There's a procedure, there, there's a process that your brain adapts to the, the physicality of it, to the gravity to the environment to all sorts of tangible things that you, you learn to ride a bike whereas there is such a thing as declarative learning which is learning words like you learn as i was uh, i think i was starting to say you can learn um lists of words for example if you wanted to learn uh geography in the united states you would have a, a verbal list of words they're, they're places but but if you want to memorize them, you put them into your declarative memory system, which is a whole different ball of wax than your procedural learning. So procedural is how do you do something, whereas declarative learning is, is what kind of stuff? What, you know, what, what do you want to learn? You want to learn your spelling words. You want to learn geography. You want to memorize a speech. Those are different types of learning. You can talk yourself through learning a, a speech, but you can't necessarily talk yourself uh, into riding a bike or, or cooking. You have to do it to, to actually do it. Um, do you want to clarify any more of that, Skip? Is that rote learning? Rote so Roach declared as he wrote declared okay. having to memorize this list of words. And I mean, the thing that's confusing about, I think, our, our industry, and I'm, I'm including you know, neuroscience and all that, is that there's just a lot of words for the same stuff. So you know, you're saying declarative and I'm thinking explicit and then we're talking about procedural and that's implicit. So if, if we want to make it super simple, I think we can say procedural learning and we're doing a decent job talking about it, I think, but we're talking about conscious and unconscious functioning, right? I, I need to learn a list of words because I have a test tomorrow. I'm going to go and read them and study them and try to, you know, air quotes, memorize them. Um, learning a bike. Yeah, I've got words that I'm going to do and maybe I have a conscious motivation to learn how to ride a bike but the automation of the skills necessary to do it is the unconscious part right your body learns how to balance and do this thing and when to push and it's it's the same with the uh learning how to drive stick right like those things just become learned those are procedural learning tasks right it's it's this skill and i say skill it's an ability that we all have to varying degrees is that's procedural learning. And again, just back to where I started a little bit, a lot of folks, and I would say the vast majority of people I see are there for some version of procedural learning deficit, meaning their brains for whatever reasons have difficulty doing this learning efficiently. And efficiently just means as fast as you need to to be successful in your environment. And so now we're talking about, you know, in a little more vague sense, but that's procedural learning. And then you're procedurally learning procedural learning tasks, right? Mm -hmm. So again, that's where we get a little. Yep. 
We can take it down the road a little bit. So it's stimulus based. It, it's uh -huh. right, uh, stimulus reward. Now we're talking about that. So there's reward systems in our brain that reward us for doing doing the the thing we want to be doing and, and improve upon it through repetitive practice. And now we're getting into neurofeedback, right? So neurofeedback is basically procedural learning. You're, there's a stimulus that's applied to you when you do the right thing, and there's a stimulus removed from you when you're not doing the right thing. So now we're talking about reward-based learning. And so procedural learning, and the, that's the reason, you know, we want to talk about this, you know, answer the question is uh, to explain that that is actually a difference between neurofeedback and, and a lot of parts of the talk therapy. Talk therapy is a different part of your brain than procedural learning and that's the the point i think we, we you know to make it simple that's the point we're trying to make is that our, our brain adapts to its environment it learns using stimulus cue stimulus we're talking about you know sight and in touch and um, hearing so we're using our senses to learn about the world with the goal of i want to achieve this procedure. I want to learn how to ride a bike. So I'm using my hands, I'm using my balance, I'm using my hearing, I'm using all of these senses that you may not realize you use, but that is stimulus-based, uh, reward-based learning, and it's very much what we're doing with uh, neurofeedback. It also, just to jump in uh, and take us back to last week, the stimulus or stimuli that you're referring to, right? That's, that's our nervous system, right? right. Our, our nervous system taking in information from the environment and, you know, millions of bits of information a second, right? And, and all our senses are doing that and our nervous system is doing that. And in particular, the Annie Hopper stuff, the DNRSSR, sorry, Annie, I always get the letters mixed up, but it's the idea of what I think is happening with neurofeedback, but you're doing it consciously. So you're addressing this unconscious activity, which is your nervous system doing what it's doing. The folks that join up with Annie Hopper have nervous systems that are kind of over functioning, right? They're, they're stuck on. And so would they benefit from neurofeedback? A hundred percent, in my opinion, Annie Hopper doesn't do neurofeedback. So she developed this other program where folks can through their own conscious practice and dialogue. It's, it's kind of a, a script that you develop, not to minimize it, but, and, and you kind of practice it. The idea being again, that our thoughts do affect how we feel. They don't guide as we were disputing earlier, right? But they do affect it, right? You're, if you interpret something as, oh, that sucks, then you're gonna be bummed out if you interpret it, hey, that was pretty neat. Obviously you're gonna feel a little bit differently. Just an you know, easy example there. Uh, but anyway, to go back to just last week and, and those kinds of ideas, it's, it's another way of addressing this nervous system uh, that has maybe, for whatever reasons, gone kind of haywire. To reiterate what you're saying, though, Laura, I think neurofeedback does it in, in very impactfully, relatively quickly. And the kind of basis, like if we're doing testing for you know, back to neuropsych testing away from neurofeedback for a second. When we're doing uh, neuropsychological testing, a lot of what we're testing is what do you know? What kind of information, verbal information do you know? You know, who's the 
president of the United States during the Civil War. That's, we can call it a fact. So you're, you're learning and we're, we're testing for facts, but we're also testing for, as you said, how quickly do you adapt while problem solving? And some people adapt very quickly. They have quick processing speed. Um, and some people adapt very slowly. And the thing we rarely talk about is some people don't adapt at all. They can't, like they're missing, you know, whatever uh, ability in, in, you know, whether it's developmental or brain injury, or there's some kind of missing piece that prevents them from learning new procedures. It just can't happen because those parts are non-functional. And, and, you know, to neurofeedback, we're trying to wake those things up. So, you know, it's not a lost cause. We're trying to, you know, do different ways to get around that. Let me throw this in, maybe you can, you, can, uh, you know, find that thread. But if you can't, if you can't learn procedures, you're hurting. That's where I'm going with that. <laughs> so, but not like, like it's, it's a giant deal and, and not to, you know, just slip in here when you just have a little brain malfunction, but it, neuropsychology doesn't test it very well and i don't know about you i get all kinds of parents ask me hey you're gonna be testing iq and i'm like yeah but and so what you know what i mean it's, I'll, I'll give you the number for sure it's part of it but i'm going to give you other information that's better and that's going to tell you more about how your kid's brain works so you can you know figure out how to do things the best for them right um so anyway back back to you but yeah procedures your your toast Right, right. So, but that's kind of what, what our job is, you know, in terms of assessment, we talked about, you know, dif different clinical levels or levels of experience in education, whatever, of, you know, helping people is, you know, maybe through the neuropsych testing, we can identify, you know, which people have difficulty learning procedures, and then those are going to be, you know, ho hopefully good candidates for the neurofeedback. Just to kind of I, I won't go down this too far, but it, it it's sticking out when you were talking about FDA approval and, and this, you know, such um, the tests that we use at, at work, right? A neuro, neuropsychological test. Um, we tend to use some of them through our training from Len, kind of off label, right? So FDA has this approval of medications, hey, here's what it's approved for. And then there's this kind of end around where folks use the medications for what they refer to as off label purposes and it means for things other than it's FDA approved for. And I think we were taught by Len to use the tests that are available that again, for the most part, are set up to test what people know in another way, right? Meaning how do they do what they do as opposed to what do they know? And so if you can't remember, you know, who the president is from the Civil War, is that a memory issue? Is it an educational issue? What is it? And so you're trying to figure that out more so through these other tests that we use. We're assessing for procedural learning. And Len was a giant proponent of, of evaluating that. You're mentioning that, hey, if folks are efficient at procedural learning, that would tend to lend itself well to being a good candidate for neurofeedback. If they're good at procedural learning and you're able to measure that, they're good candidates for lots of stuff. Right, it's an invaluable measurement. It's just not measured at, at hardly at all. Right? Folks don't even talk about it. Um, it's certainly in, in our world they don't. Right, right. And so yeah, I got my my back on track here. I was going to bring up Sully. Okay. Uh, yeah. Guy, yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking. Uh, the the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson. Yep. Yeah. Him up. 
all the declare all the school book learning we'll use that interchangeably with uh, explicit declarative learning but all the school book learning um you know he was trained like i guess all pilots and i'm, I'm gonna gonna fake a little bit of this because i'm not a pilot but i'm sure you have to learn you know book learn some stuff uh when you're a pilot and he i'm sure he had all good book learning like all the other pilots but he had to adjust to the stimuli he had to adjust and probably break some school book rules to land that plane on the hudson and i think that's the point of procedural learning what you know in terms of words and studying from a book does not help you, you know, save passengers uh, in an airline. And that's what we can measure. We can, you know, measure that through neuropsych testing and say, okay, how adaptable are you in, you know, that's certainly a crisis situation, but how adaptable are you at problem solving? And Len would always talk about um, using tools for more than their purpose. He would give examples of using a paper clip to uh, break into uh, the, the uh, thermometer on the wall to turn up the heat um, in, in, a, in a building that we're, we weren't really allowed to do that. But yeah, he's using a paper clip to get in there. So it's kind of thinking outside the box and using your hands and tools and the environmental uh, stimuli to uh, adapt and to uh, solve problems. And so that kind of information, I mean, it's good for children in the classroom and, you know, advising parents, but it's also, you know, you, th you think about the the use of that, you know, in the, in maybe in the, the job world, you know, if someone's hiring and we want to know if, you know, are they able to adapt quickly? Can they learn our equipment quickly? Can they problem solve? Can they think on their feet? They can have straight A's from Harvard, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they can, you know, land a plane in the Hudson or, or problem solve when my computer crashes or, um, you know, think on their feet when, you know, different things you know, that are unpredictable uh, come up. So th that's the importance of procedural learning is kind of knowing the difference between, you know, again, book learning and, and actually doing things in, in real life, the action of interacting with the world and making on-the-spot decisions. How you do what you do. Hey, yeah. Pete, I'm going to give yep. you a background working in the corporate world and I imagine you'd yes. hired one or two people in your lifetime. So how did you decide who was uh, a good candidate? How did you decide who was able to adapt to your corporate job? It was a, it was a mixture of things. You would use a can grade or some type of testing tool, see how the people compare to the benchmark of the people that are successful. Uh, and the number two, you would have them come in and then you would uh, role play with them, have them display that they can do the job. So sell me this pen, you know, for lack of a better, you get to see them in action. So you role play, uh, objective testing, and another offshoot of showing that they can do the job, you would give them a script to memorize and see if they could stay to the bullet points of the script. You give it to them the night before and see how fast they can pick it up. People that really want to do it will will study it with a short amount of time that people don't really want to do it, won't do it. So what kind that's, of that's my long-winded psychology yeah. answer. That's what I'm off you, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> what tools would you use? You said you had some objective. You told me about them once, but uh, do you remember what, what the... the... Uh, can grade was one. Um, 
Wonderlick had something that was out there and there was another one. And you know what? They weren't all that great, but what they would do is they would give you a slight edge. If you're on the fence with somebody and you need to make a call, it would help you make that call. So it was, uh, it, it was good for new leaders that were doing interviewing because it would offer you questions to ask, to drill down on certain points. And uh, it, would, it would give something objective to, to go to because you're going to make mistakes and you go back in time and say, oh, should I brought that person on? Yes or no. So I'm going to guess that the objective tools you had were procedural kinds of things, like you had them do stuff. We tried, uh, we did a group interview where we threw puzzle pieces on the table and we just watched how people interact mm -hmm. uh, that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but I think what, what point of my question for you is that in order to find out, be successful, we'll just say at a job like you uh, were hiring for, they had to show you what they can do rather than tell you what they can do. You know, so you weren't just making decisions on a resume and, and what could they study from a book, but, and I'm sure that you need that stuff too. They have to have a knowledge base of stuff, but you're, they also had to demonstrate uh, how to do things um, and how to adapt, as you said, quickly, even if they made a mistake, how do you, how do you, how do you um, recover and get back to what you're supposed to be doing? So those, those examples, you know, of even having them in a group situation and in, in an interview and puzzle pieces, they're interacting with the stimuli, they're interacting with right. things you're watching and you're, you know, kind of grading them on how quickly and, and how, and you, you're, you're bringing into this uh, talk, the social piece, like, how do they interact with each other? And, and, and interacting socially is a procedure. It's something mm -hmm. learn, sure nonverbal communication, et cetera. And those are yeah, all things you do. So you can't necessarily learn social skills from a book. You can learn some, some ideas, some bullet points, but then to actually do them and execute them properly, you got to practice. You got to be in real life. And so that, that's a per, those are all perfect examples of procedural learning, learning how to do things. There's the ability to interview and there's the ability to do the job. You have people that are really good interviewers, but when they get in the job, forget about it. That's right. why so they're that, so good at interviewing. That's right. Yeah. So that's rote. I mean, your question was, you know, what's rote learning? Yeah. Can I memorize, you know, can I look up on Google, you know, what questions might come to me in an interview like this? Can I memorize some answers and have some rote things? But the second that you're required to, you know, think off, off the script and you can't, yeah adjust to the novelty now now you're in trouble so but that's the point people with good procedural learning can adapt to new things and, and switch and adjust and, and uh, uh, recover when things go off script what are you thinking about skip you look very uh, pensive hey i'm thinking of the same thing you guys are talking about i was thinking about different industries and you know the, the interview process but asking folks well i've had a restaurant for seven or eight years and lots of employees over time. That's also, I think, particular to the service industry, right? But, you know, you, you could talk to people about the work they've done in restaurants and they have resumes and this and that, but it takes being at work, one, seeing how you work with the particular, there's always a chemistry, right? A, a personality fit or not too, but you gotta be able to do stuff on the fly. Um, in, in that world, it can get pretty hectic pretty quickly. And it's not a matter of, hey, I know how to do this. I can do that. I can make this. I can make that. I can put this here. I can wash a dish. It's can you do all that while 50 other things are going on? And that's just a matter of seeing if people could do it or not. And so it's just, that's what, that's where I was. It's kind of lost in that. 
Um, but, but that's such a really clear example, I think, of what we're talking about, right? How, how do you just access and react to things in ways that meet the demands of your environment? And that might mean not running into somebody that's carrying a tray of food, um, yeah. right? But continuing to do what you need to do, which means also remembering what the hell you were intending to do, right? Before someone came whipping around the corner with a tray of food. All that's like nanosecond split decision things that have to happen, right? Like Sully. Right. And, and so that's the brain function that we're talking about. We're talking about the stuff that we can't think about, right? It has to happen unconsciously, automatically, and we hope efficiently, right? And then Sully gets to get out of this, you know, un, unbook learned situation safely, right? And then everybody gets off the plane and, you know, bows down to him or whatever. And then he's on you know, the Today Show the next day and all that. And then we're still talking about him. But those are the kinds of things we're talking about. That's procedural learning. And so it just seems like we always get into this, at least I do in my head. Maybe that's what I was thinking about. But consistently, constantly, it's you know, a little dramatic, but trying to express, hey, the stuff we're talking about here is unconscious. And I don't know the number, but it's a lot. 95%, 99% say some people of our functioning is unconscious. It's our consciousness that makes a big deal out of who we are and makes it seem like, hey, we're in charge and do everything. And I'm Skip and you're Laura and Pete and all that. And our brain's like, yeah, well, did you say something? You know, I got a bunch of things going on here. So if, you're, if it's not important, pipe down, you know? And it's just, we keep coming back to that because it's the, it's the anchor, right? It's everything we're working on and talking about. And every week, somehow we discuss how unconscious neurological functioning is the whole shebang. And so there we go. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's, yeah, the point we want to drive home is that we're not driven by our thoughts. We are driven by our impulses. We're driven by an unconscious force. And that is the, the debate. I mean, that's the thing that kind of turns everything, you know, 180. You know, people think that they are driving themselves to a degree they are they're they're controlling the impulses they're directing them and organizing them and stopping them but the point is that our decisions are made before we decide them consciously if a car uh, swerves in front of me while I'm driving I don't go to the you know driving manual to see what to do I'm moving my car before I tell myself to move the car out of the way it's unconscious so there, there's this fraction of a second that um, we, we're not consciously in control of what we're doing. We are driven by uh, unconscious things and people don't always want to hear that. They don't want to, you know, kind of realize that, oh no, I want to be in control of everything I'm doing. Well, no, you, you're not. You're, you're uh, you know, your biology is, is controlling and, and um, you know, the, there's reward systems that select behavior and deselect behavior and all of those things. But I think the, the, how it wraps back into neurofeedback and neuronoodle and why we're doing these podcasts is to educate the you know, listeners on you know, what is neurofeedback? Like what, why, why is that any better or different than talk therapy? And we could talk about how it's different from medications another day. But um, you know, if you're trying to understand neurofeedback, there's this whole kind of gamut of, of uh, things going on with our brain that help us make decisions and learn. And if, you know, we at least understood, you know, minimally that these things are not 
in our conscious control all the time. They're unconscious. Um, and we can, if we make those things better, then the rest of the system works better. You're going to make better decisions if your procedural learning um, is in place. So, you know, there's obviously more to this conversation, but the, the point of, you know, talking to the non-science person is to just kind of know the difference between, you know, what's, in, what's driving us. Is it our, our thoughts or is it um, our uh, biology? And, and one last plug for maybe considering things that way. And as a non-parent, super easy to say. Uh, but like I, like I like to always tell parents, hey, I work with a lot of kids. I just don't live with them. But the idea is that, hey, these behaviors you're seeing, while I understand you have things you need and want your kids to do, because that's the way it is, that your interpretation of what's leading them to do something, it could also be contributing to whatever issues are going on here, meaning hey, you know, you want your kid to sit still. And that doesn't mean he can't hear you and understand that you want him to sit still. It means that there might be something going on neurologically and physiologically that it's really hard to do so. And giving one's attention to something that's going on outside because it's so enticing, you know, can be an unconscious neurological functioning as opposed to just real quickly, a, a disobedient act, which then leads to all kinds of things. I told you to do this and you need to do that. Uh, you know, kind of thing. And it just, this dialogue we're having, this conversation we're having, it's, it's, I think, important to understand things. We're not trying to eliminate the humanness of us or, you know, kind of lay it out there like, hey, we're just, you know, being dragged around by our nervous systems. Um, our consciousness is real and it interprets what we experience. It's just, hey, we got to give a little credit to the mechanism here that's doing most of the heavy lifting right we're just sitting around and interpreting things and kind of going oh that's good or that's bad and there's just a hell of a lot more to it is is, is my point at least i don't own that point but it's the one i'm trying to make right now okay that was a great podcast guys holy cow procedural learning there was a lot of procedurals <laughs> a lot of procedures <laughs> uh hey the listeners ask for it we 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 give it they want to know we tell them and boy do we tell them Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's drskip, H-R-I-N.com. Hey, you got an idea for a topic? Please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash, smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Okay, guys, guys great podcast. We got uh, Steve from... Uh, Sten's Corporation next week. We'll we'll ask him about that FDA approval on his equipment. Good. There we go. All right, All right guys. Hey.